Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. As the U.S. braces for an onslaught of coronavirus cases, CNN has obtained a 100-page federal report that shows the government is planning for a pandemic that could last 18 months or longer and could include multiple waves of illness. I would like to... This, as President Trump announced, he's invoking the Defense Production Act to increase supplies of medical equipment. We'll be invoking the Defense Production Act just in case we need it. For weeks, hospitals have warned they're running dangerously low on ventilators. Asked why he waited so long to invoke the act that allows private companies to ramp up production, if he knew the life-saving machines were in short supply, Trump said this. But we knew for weeks we needed more ventilators, so why did it take so long? Well, we knew. It depends. It it depends on how it goes. Uh, Worst case, absolutely. Uh, Best case, not, not at all. So we're going to have to see where it goes. Hospitals also say they need more staff to deal with the crush of cases. The White House announced a new rule today that will allow doctors and other medical professionals to work across state lines. As the administration works out a stimulus bill with Capitol Hill, Trump added he'll suspend foreclosures and evictions on homeowners until at least the end of next month. We're working very closely with Dr. Ben Carson and everybody from HUD. The president also confirmed he'll impose emergency border controls to turn back asylum seekers and other foreigners attempting to enter the U.S. through Mexico illegally during the outbreak. The answer is yes. The president says the coronavirus will require a response not seen since World War II and says he views himself as a wartime president. Yeah, I look at it, I view it as a, uh, in a sense, a wartime president. I mean, that's what we're fighting. Trump added he's preparing to deploy two Navy hospital ships, the USNS Comfort and the USNS Mercy, to New York City and the West Coast. They're the big white ships with the Red Cross on the sides. But the Pentagon says one of them could be weeks away from deploying. And the ships won't be used to treat coronavirus patients, only those suffering other illnesses in order to help hospitals that are treating those with coronavirus. Now, Jake, we should note the Secretary of Defense was in that briefing today, and he said that the Pentagon is going to free up 5 million of those protective masks and 2,000 ventilators uh, as we're experiencing. Clearly, what hospitals say is a shortage of them. All right. Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's bring in Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Mr. Secretary, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, President Trump announced today, uh, we have just covered, he's invoking the Defense Production Act. That will uh, ramp up the production of medical supplies, hospital mask protective gear, What numbers and goals are we talking about? I know that you talked about 5 million masks in the Pentagon stockpiles, 2,000 ventilators. Um, When will those be able to be delivered to hospitals and emergency rooms? Well, thank you, Jake, uh, first of all, for having me on on your show. Uh, What the DOD has done is uh, made available to HHS and the interagency uh, a number of things, whether it's personnel, uh, capability, equipment, uh, for the agency, interagency, to deal with this uh, national health uh, emergency. 
So we've offered up up to five million respirators, as you mentioned, but also other personal protective equipment, such as gowns and masks. Uh, We've also offered up uh, uh, 2,000 ventilators to be used in hospitals and then other pieces of equipment. Uh, We've opened up our labs, 15 uh, labs presently that conduct uh, uh, conduct testing of uh, samples and return them back to the states and localities. So we're pushing on a number of fronts to make sure that we're doing everything we can to help keep the American people safe. Any, any timelines on how quickly these ventilators and masks can get to the front lines of this war against coronavirus? We've made that all available to uh, HHS immediately, certainly with regard to the masks, one million immediately. Everything else is available as quickly as we can move it out of our stocks and deliver it. And uh, there are other things, other areas where we are working, pushing hard with the interagency. So, for example, yesterday I was at Fort Detrick, Maryland, where the Army's uh, premier infectious diseases program is located. And they are busy working on both vaccines and therapeutics to deal with the uh, COVID-19 disease. Will service members also be uh, helping out with manufacturing in any way? Not necessarily manufacturing, but one of the things that our our, uh, medical specialists can do up at uh, Fort Detrick is to help the process with regard to clinical studies, trials, and the actual uh, manufacturing development, the prototype development, if you will. So they're leaning forward on that front, uh, also with regard to advanced testing machines to improve the throughput of uh, test samples that come through. And and as uh, Caitlin mentioned in her piece, uh, the president talked about these two hospital ships that will be deployed to help overwhelmed medical facilities. One, in New- one will be deployed to New York, one to the West Coast. Now, we understand that staff on these ships will not be treating coronavirus patients. Um, so is it correct to say that these ships are going to become something like floating emergency rooms for other medical issues so as to al- alleviate the surge of uh, coronavirus patients on other hospitals? Yeah, you have to keep in mind, and I've had this discussion with uh, my colleagues in the interagency. I've talked to several governors as well that uh, DOD capabilities quite naturally are built for trauma. And so when you look at our field hospitals, uh, another capability that we have offered up as well, or these hospital ships, they are geared toward wartime trauma. Think uh, think broken bones and head injuries and lacerations and things like that. So as I've spoken to some of the governors, what I've said to them is what we can do is provide a capability that we can deliver on site, near site of a civilian hospital. We can take care of your trauma patients so that you can open up more rooms for patients with the COVID-19, because what they require are special rooms that are sequestered, that have other capabilities that we don't necessarily uh, uh, have available to us in our field hospitals and on these ships. So it's a way of opening up rooms. It's, it's a different approach, but we want to make all that available so that we're doing everything we can to help the American people. How soon do you think these hospital ships will be deployed to New York and to the West Coast? They're both in a different status at the president's direction. We have alerted them. Uh, the Comfort, which is on the East Coast, uh, should be ready in a couple weeks plus. Uh, the Mercy, which is on the w- West Coast, uh, should be ready in a week and a half, two weeks. So uh, uh, definitely before the end of uh, this month, the Mercy will deploy. So uh, we're moving everything we can to do that. A a challenge is making sure that they're properly staffed. Uh, That means in both cases, each ship is over a thousand medical professionals. So we need to get them alerted to on the ships and then start steaming to the respective locations. Are there any discussions uh, of the Pentagon also opening up pre-existing military hospitals across the country or even constructing, for want of a better term, MASH units uh, where they might be needed in in cities, uh, again, to alleviate the the surge uh, of patients that uh, the hospitals and emergency rooms will be experiencing. You know, Jake, we have 36 uh, military treatment facilities around the country in the United States. 
Uh, those are filled with uh, DOD patients, service members right now. Uh, they have some bed space, but we obviously have to keep uh, some cushion for planning for an emergency. But what we have offered up are what I mentioned, those field hospitals, uh, those uh, ex uh, field exp expeditionary hospitals. Those provide the same functions as the hospital ships. We can fill them fairly quickly. We can provide hospital beds, and we can provide doctors, nurses, equipment, all those things you need. But again, they're geared toward trauma. And what we can do is, uh, is to create space in local hospitals by peeling off their trauma patients and putting them through our field hospitals. Hospitals. So setting up in a hotel near a hospital or setting up in a, a mobile unit in a parking lot near a hospital to help, could, help them alleviate? We could do all that. We could set it up in an open field and we can process patients through there. Whatever makes most sense that's most convenient for the governors. Again, those are conversations I'm having uh, that my team is having. Now, I think you mentioned the Army Corps of Engineers. I've also dispatched them up to uh, uh, New York today to meet with Governor Cuomo's team. He and I had a good conversation yesterday. Uh, what they're looking at is how can they use their contracting uh, functions, their great project oversight to look at uh, spaces that the state is clearing and then reconfiguring, re renovating those rooms to enable to put patients in, whether it's running additional airlines uh, or elect electrical lines, all those things we need to do to present, open up space, bed space, room space uh, for COVID-19 patients. I just want to make sure I understand correctly because there's a difference in terms of the discussion on masks, because there's obviously a big difference between just like a surgical mask and what's called an N95 respiratory mask, which, which really protects you uh, or a doctor or whomever, construction workers, from uh, damaging uh, viruses or anything else in, in the air. These five million masks that you're making available to the Department of Health and Human Services, these are N95 masks, right? Yes, those are N95 masks that we're pulling from our strate strategic stockpile. A million are available right now. Uh, HHS, uh, we are working closely with them to make sure we can get them to the right points and get them distributed. Now, you, you know there's this New York Times report that Oregon and New York City requested and received some of these N95 masks from the government, but they, they only got a fraction of what they requested, and the masks they got had all expired. Um, do you know when the Pentagon's, the military's N95 masks expire? Are you making sure that they're usable? Well, we have to go through the same processes to make sure our stocks are current, that what we have. We've, we've had those challenges where we have to cycle stock in and out, but we're going through all that, and we will make sure that we provide, of course, uh, ready, available uh, masks to HHS. And then HHS is the, the point right now through which these are distributed around the country based on need. How will they be distributed, the masks? I mean, I know you said you make uh, the HHS, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, aware that they're ready. I mean, does somebody drive them from the Pentagon? Does somebody tell, the, tell HHS they're in these uh, facilities? How does exactly does it work? I mean, 5 million masks or even 1 million masks, that's, that's a lot of, a lot yeah. of uh, material. Look, we have the means to move them ourselves, of course, whether it's by ground or by air. Uh, HHS has other means as well. But our key thing is get them to where they need them on time. That's how, our commitment. How long might it take to, to get them to the front lines? Oh, I, for DOD, it's a matter of days for us to get them to HHS or to get them to the point of distribution. Um, New York Governor Cuomo, uh, as you mentioned, you talked about the Army Corps of Engineers meeting with the government of New York. Um, the engineers told CNN uh, that no formal request had been made in terms of uh, the Army Corps building these temporary 
hospitals. Um, has that now changed? I have not seen, seen a formal request, but frankly, that doesn't matter to me. We're leaning into this. We're going to stay ahead of the curve. We're not going to let paperwork get in the way. I called the governor yesterday. We had a good conversation. I told him uh, yesterday afternoon that I have the Corps of Engineers up in Albany today, and they are, they're in the state. They're meeting with his team, and they're, uh, they're discussing a variety of ways and proposals by which we can help them out. If we can help them out, we certainly will. I want to ask you about the 49, 49 U.S. service members who have now been treated for coronavirus. And in addition, there's a number of contractors and other Pentagon employees. How are they doing? How are they being treated? Are any of them critical? They're doing well. Uh, we are giving them all the proper uh, uh, care and attention that they, uh, that they require. I called two of them yesterday and chatted with them, one, uh, one here in Virginia, the other one out on the West Coast. They were in good spirits. The uh, chain of command was checking in on them. Uh, and uh, they were faring well. Uh, the, the good thing about DOD, at least with our uniform population, is they are generally young and robust and healthy, and uh, they're, they are enduring this fairly well. But we watch everybody carefully, and as you noted, we have not just service members, but we've got family members, we've yeah. got beneficiaries, and so we, we're taking care of our entire population. That's one of my first priorities. And, and uh, as you know better than I, active duty military typically work and live in very close quarters, uh, whether in a barracks or even on a base. Um, how are you making sure these cases don't quickly spread and, and what kind of investigations are going on in terms of uh, how they contracted the virus? Yeah, we're doing all that uh, we're very judiciously. We're t uh, exercising as many precautions as we can. You know, here, here in DOD, which is not a deployed unit, we're doing everything from social distancing to wiping down doorknobs and, and, uh, and desktops. Uh, I actually do uh, video teleconferences with my deputy and the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff from separate offices just to keep that distancing. But the units are doing the same to the best they can. In some cases, for example, on shipboard, you really can't achieve that. So we treat ships in some cases as units. And uh, b before they go into another port, we make sure there's 14 days at sea so that we don't uh, we don't uh, have a spread with the, on board a ship and then transmit it ashore if we if we uh, if they go port side. So. Uh, that's happening in all the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. We're taking every precaution we can, but mission comes first, and uh, we're focused on those two things. Last question, and I do appreciate your time, and I do appreciate your coming and answering all my questions. Um, this all sounds great. I don't know that it will be enough, but it all sounds like a very important step. Shouldn't the president have invoked the Defense Production Act, like, in February? Well, I, I don't know the timing of all these different things. Uh, Jake, we've been putting our plans into place. The president has a great team that's uh, helping him uh, from across the interagency. Uh, a lot of very smart people who, who have been through this before. And he's making uh, some pretty, pretty sharp decisions, bold decisions, to make sure that we stay ahead of this or, or, uh, or uh, take every precaution we need to pr protect the American people. All right. Well, we all, of course, wish you the best with this mission uh, to you and your servicemen and women. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jake. Coming up ahead, a CNN investigation, even as officials promised, there are more tests out there. Some labs say they don't have the materials to run the tests once they get, once they get the swabs. One health expert saying they're even scraping together supplies from flu tests. Stay with us. Welcome back. Uh, we are back with our health lead and our coverage of the coronavirus pandemic worldwide and here in the United States, what President Trump is calling a war against an invisible enemy. And as CNN's Erica Hill reports, that characterization is something New York Governor Andrew Cuomo fully agreed with today. The president and I agree this is a war uh, and we're in the same trench as New York announces at least 2,300 confirmed cases, the most in the nation, and a jump of 1,000 in just one day, 
Governor Cuomo taking new measures to combat the spread. And I'm asking all businesses to work from home, but today we are announcing a mandatory statewide requirement that no business can have more than 50% of their workforce uh, report to work outside of their home. The executive order exempts essential services, including first responders, healthcare workers, pharmacies, and food delivery. About 20% of the New York cases require hospitalization, making the need for additional beds increasingly urgent. President Trump responding today. We're sending... Uh, Upon request, the two hospital ships are being prepared right now. The Navy ships will be sent to New York and the West Coast. Multiple states also putting out an urgent call for nurses, as the virus is now confirmed in all 50 states, West Virginia being the last. We've got hospitals that have been closing in rural areas because of a lack of economic vitality to keep them open. We shouldn't close any hospitals right now. We don't know what's going to be needed. Meantime, life continues to change. The border with Canada closed to all non-essential travel. Across Northern California, nearly 8 million Americans now told to shelter in place. And in Kansas, children will be home for the remainder of the school year. Unprecedented circumstances threaten the safety of our students and the professionals who work with them every day and we must respond accordingly. More confirmed cases across the sports world. The Ottawa Senators, the first in the NHL to announce a player has tested positive. The entire team asked to isolate. And after four Brooklyn Nets players, including star Kevin Durant, tested positive. An NBA source telling CNN it's, quote, crazy. More teams haven't tested players. Meantime, pressure growing to cancel or postpone the Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo. In Florida, defiant beachgoers causing alarm around the country. While officials stress this is only the beginning. As I hear people say certain age groups are immune, I know this. In Michigan, we have a five-year-old that has tested positive for coronavirus. This is a situation that impacts everyone in every age group. And I implore people to take this seriously. And in terms of taking it seriously, as I know you've heard from multiple officials, Jake, there is a real stress at the state level uh, to get a handle on the medical needs. And we heard from HHS today that they're actually going to be putting out a regulation, Jake, that would allow physicians and medical professionals to work across state lines to meet the upcoming need. All right. They probably need to do more than that. They probably need to bring back uh, retired physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and uh, even deputize interns and, and more. Uh, Erica Hill, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, let's bring in Michael Osterholm. He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. We should point out uh, that Mr. Osterholm's been warning the United States for decades that we're ill-prepared for a situation like this. Uh, Mr. Osterholm, you started warning the United States about uh, potential biological warfare in the 90s, and then in the early 2000s, you started talking about how the U.S. is not prepared for a pandemic. Are we better off now than we were when you started warning us? 
Actually, we're not. That's a sad commentary. Uh, one of the key elements of responding to a pandemic like this is having a robust and capable healthcare system, along with a robust private sector that can make the kind of drugs and so forth we need. And in each instance, the healthcare system today has no excess capacity whatsoever, not even the ability to stockpile these masks and so forth that we need. And the private sector is all just in time delivery. So again, we're not going to see a bolus of uh, what we need coming down the pike. Well, that's terrifying. Uh, and let me ask you, I want to get your reaction to some breaking news. Uh, there's a report from Italian health officials saying that on average, uh, people in Italy, people who die from the coronavirus, are dying eight days after they first show symptoms. What does that suggest about the timeline we may face here in the United States? Well, first of all, the timeline for dying is very different than the timeline for new cases. Uh, and in China, many of the patients didn't die until the second or third week after their onset. But every day beyond the day of onset that they need a hospital bed, it just ties that many more up. And this is why we're not only talking about the number of patients coming to the hospital needing care, but the fact that many of them will be there three weeks or more in intensive care. So that's a real challenge. We heard the Trump administration describe uh, new steps they're taking to combat the virus today, including invoking the Defense Production Act to make more medical gear, uh, sending two hospital ships to New York, deploying five million new masks. You just heard uh, the Secretary of Defense talking about some of that. What else does the Trump administration and local and state governments, what, what else do we need to be doing? Well, first of all, we have to have straight talk right now. Let's just go through that list you just gave us. The Defense Medical Act, and it's a cosmetic event already. All the companies that could make the protective equipment we need have been making it for several months 24-7. So we have no additional benefit there. There is nothing magic that's going to happen with this. To get a new uh, a plant up to make N95 masks takes years. It's not something that can happen overnight. As far as uh, the Defense Department, we welcome any help we can get, but we need several hundred million N95 respirators we're short of right now just to meet the minimal care that we think is going to be required. Two million is a great number, but that's like trying to fill Lake Superior with a garden hose. So I think that what we just want right now is straight talk. What are we going to really do that's going to make a difference? And if it doesn't make a difference, then how are we going to get through? And I think that's what healthcare workers want to hear right now uh, about what they're going to be able to do, how they're going to be protected. You also mentioned the issue about bringing back retired doctors, nurses. That's not a good idea. And the reason I say that is as much as they can help and they surely want to help, they're the very same people at the highest risk if they do get infected of having a very bad illness themselves. And if we can't protect them at the hospital because we don't have the gear, I don't want to see them become the next casualty line that we're going to have to deal with. Well, obviously, you wouldn't want to bring them back if we don't have protective gear. It's an excellent point. Uh, Dr. Uh, Deborah Burks, who is leading the White House Coronavirus Task Force, said this afternoon that the information they're getting from other countries uh, shows that younger people, such as millennials, Generation Z, may actually be at greater risk than had previously been thought. She noted there are cases of millennials being sent to the intensive care unit with coronavirus in France and in Italy. This is not just contracting it. This is being sent to the intensive care unit. How might that change the calculus for how the U.S. deals with the virus? 
Well, first of all, these cases are obviously very tragic. I mean, we know, for example, the young Chinese physician who first indexed this outbreak in China on the internet died as a result of his infection. I would just be a little cautious in interpreting these because each death is tragic as it is. There are many, many individuals in this age group are getting infected. So unlike in China, where 10 to 12% of those over 65 who smoked were male died, this still may be one of those situations where one out of every thousand or more infected die. But I want to make it very clear. Yes, young adults are vulnerable to this, not only getting infected, but also rarely, but nonetheless, very importantly, having a very, very severe illness and potentially even death. And Ron Klain, who was the Ebola czar during the Obama administration, he said on CNN today that some hospitals are going to start reaching their breaking points as soon as this weekend. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I think Ron's assessment's right on the mark. Uh, and you know, the thing that I think is also being missed, though, that's this weekend. As you talked about in the lead into this segment, uh, we're talking about potentially 12 or 18 months of this. And so while we have to plan each day's battle, as has been said, this is a war, we've got a number of days of battle to do. So we have to figure out now how are we going to get these hospitals through, not just today, not this week, not next next week, but potentially months of being under siege with these cases. All right, Michael Osterholm, we always appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much. Good to see you again, sir. Th thank you, Jake. Good to talk to you again. Health officials scraping together supplies. Why more coronavirus tests does not mean labs can process them all. It's a CNN investigation, and it's next. Stay with us. We have some breaking news for you. The Senate in the U.S. just passed the House coronavirus relief bill. CNN senior congressional correspondent Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, what's in the bill? Yeah, this is a bill that was approved by a 90 to 8 margin, overwhelmingly approved. And this measure uh, ensures that people who want to get tested uh, for coronavirus can do so, not pay for that test. Also, it would expand unemployment insurance benefits, bolster food stamp assistance, as well as increase Medicaid spending to the states and provide some paid leave for displaced workers. Now, this marks the second aggressive intervention by Washington in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis and their efforts to try to deal with the economic fallout as well. Already, there are active conversations that are happening behind the scenes to push forward on this $1 trillion stimulus plan to deal with all sorts of measures, including providing direct financial assistance to Americans, as well as potential a bailout for the airline industry, as well as small business relief. All that is happening quickly behind the scenes as Senate Republicans try to push forward on something that they can agree to. Then they plan to try to negotiate a bipartisan deal with Senate Democrats before trying to see if they can get something through both chambers in a matter of days. But, Jake, make no mistake about it. All told, this is the most significant intervention into the economy since the Great Depression. All right, Manu Jake. Raju, thank you so much. For weeks, doctors, lawmakers, and patients have been asking the same question. Where are the tests? And despite the president today saying testing capacity is being expanded, some labs are now saying they do not have the resources they need to conduct the tests once those samples, those swabs, arrive. CNN's Drew Griffin investigates just how dire this situation is. In the cascading shortfalls of the national response to coronavirus, testing labs across the country are sounding the next alarm, telling CNN there are shortages, not just in tests, but the components needed to conduct the tests. The head of a 51 hospital network in the West says key parts are missing. In certain cases, it's reagents, which are some of the chemicals that are used. 
And even in certain cases, it's just the availability of the appropriate swab in order to take the sample. It's the same story at New York Presbyterian Hospital. There do continue to be some challenges around expanding the testing significantly at this point. And at the University of Nebraska's testing lab. We're in the situation now where we actually don't have the reagents to do the extraction from the samples so that we can run the test. Health officials in multiple states tell CNN they do not have enough tests for people who need them because of a shortage. In Minnesota, the state health agency is limiting testing to only the highest priority specimens due to a national shortage of COVID-19 laboratory testing materials. The Ohio Department of Health told CNN they're only testing our most vulnerable patients due to a global shortage of supplies. And in West Virginia, the state health officer says she had to scrape together supplies from flu tests. There's all kinds of things in the chain of testing. There's swabs, there's, there's extraction things, et cetera, et cetera. There are shortages on many pieces of it. West Virginia still has a critically low number of tests. Military veteran Kenneth Hawthorne says he's been to the emergency room three times in the past two weeks, sick with a cough, fever, but tested negative for flu. He says he cannot get tested for COVID-19. They keep telling me uh, that my wife and I were at low risk So uh, we weren't priority to take the test. A major test maker, Roche Diagnostics Corporation, tells CNN demand for its test is greater than our ability to supply it. How did this happen? Well, I think we needed to rethink how we're going to deal with an epidemic or pandemic in this case. The minute there was an outbreak in China several months ago, that should have started a whole sequence of events going. Now, as everyone would say, that's, that's the history. But what do we do now? Industries are responding, ramping up production, and both LabCorp and Quest tell CNN they are greatly increasing the number of tests they can process per day. But in the meantime, the CEO of the Association of Public Health Laboratories calls the situation a huge problem. I'm really concerned that we are not going to have the capabilities to test those who really need and should get a test. Jake, the Food and Drug Administration told CNN it's well aware of these shortages, trying to provide information on alternative sources of reagents, extraction kits, swabs, and more. But as one lab official told me, this is analogous to the run on toilet paper. Labs in this country chasing dwindling supplies and hoping the manufacturers can somehow fill the void and soon. Jake? All right, Drew Griffin, thank you so much. Coming up, the Trump administration promising more critical supplies, but What more do hospitals need? We're going to talk to our own Dr. Sanjay Gupta next. Stay with us. Welcome back. As doctors, nurses, and other medical experts continue to warn about supply shortages in hospitals in the U.S., President Trump today announced his plans to try to help increase production of necessary supplies such as ventilators. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. And Sanjay, these new measures we're hearing, uh, more ventilators testing, masks, some of which is coming from the Pentagon, some of which is coming from other places. Definitely progress. Uh, But what else needs to be done and, and how bad are we still situated right now? Yeah, I mean, look, you, there's there's actual numbers that you can look at to try and uh, predict uh, exactly what we're going to need, and it's still not entirely clear if if even the production, the the amped up production, is going to meet these needs. Let's take a quick look. I think we have a moderate sort of pandemic scenario and a more severe scenario. Jake, you and I have talked about these numbers. Let's just focus on the moderate, the left side of the screen. 
uh, 1 million hospitalizations, 200,000 ICU beds. And again, we have about 92,000 ICU beds, just under 100,000. So, uh, you know, they got to have to figure out ways to repurpose different rooms to make that work. But Jake, let me just give you the practicalities from someone who works in a hospital. First of all, you need people to then run those ventilators, respiratory technicians. They're the ones who really do that work. We don't have enough of them either. The, the, the rooms that may be retrofitted, they not only need power supply, they need a backup power supply because ventilators, they can't ever lose power, right? They also need oxygen. My point is there's a lot that goes into this, not just sort of repurposing rooms or, or creating uh, more space. You've, you've got to have the right sort of space. And the same thing with the ventilators. You need the right type of ventilators. So we're getting there, but you know, there's, there's, there's real specifics and details that need to be focused on. And let's be clear here, because I think people hear the term ventilator, you know, they, haven't, they, they know it from ER or whatever, right. but they don't really know what we're talking about. We're talking about a machine that breathes for you because you can't breathe on your own. Right. It, it, it uh, gives you oxygen and removes carbon dioxide both. It oxygenates and it ventilates, which means removing the carbon dioxide. For somebody who's, who's in severe lung disease, has severe lung disease or has developed respiratory distress, it's, it's a life-saving tool. I mean, most people, I think, know that, but these are, these are really critically important machines, and it's not clear we have enough of them. And if we have tens of thousands, we don't really have a firm number, the government has either avoided or not been able to get to that number and, and tell us how many there are, but if we have tens of thousands and it turns out we need hundreds of thousands, right. what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, look, and, and we do have some numbers that I can show you, again, based on some of the modeling we've looked at, 64,000 roughly uh, ventilators would be needed during a, during a moderate pandemic. Right now, 62,000 available, 10,000 in the stockpile. You say, well, that number's higher than 64, true, except that most of those 72 are being used right now. It's flu season, uh, people who, who are in the hospital for all sorts of different reasons. So you have nowhere near enough. And Jake, the, the answer to your question is, uh, what do you do if you have somebody who needs a ventilator and there's somebody who's already on the ventilator? I mean, those are the tough choices that, that are happening already in certain parts of the world, trying to determine which of these patients is more likely to survive and doctors having and nurses having to make those triage decisions. It's, it's painful, I think, you know, for them to do that. Meaning they come across somebody who is 75 and needs a ventilator and somebody who is 45 who needs a ventilator. The 75-year-old's not going to get a ventilator. That's all, you know, age is often one of those things that ends up being the determining criteria. But the, you know, look, what if the 75 year old was perfectly healthy up until the time they contracted the virus or, or something else, the flu, whatever it might be. I mean, you know, there are healthy, very healthy 75 year olds. So these are tough decisions, Jake, which is why we should have been planning for this for some time. The numbers I just showed you, I didn't make those numbers up. They came originally from the federal government. Everyone has access to these numbers. And again, I didn't even focus on the severe side of things. I'm just focusing on the moderate side of things because that takes into account that we're gonna have some mitigation of this, some slowing down of this. So, you know, we, we have some real, real goals to hit here. I, I want you to listen to Dr. Deborah Burks uh, at today's press conference talking about how more young people are becoming seriously ill. Take a listen. Yeah. There are concerning reports coming out of France and Italy about some young people getting seriously ill and very seriously ill in the ICUs. What's your message to the young people out there who think they're invincible? 
Well, look, I mean, I think a lot of, we're dealing with the novel virus. A lot of the, what we heard initially out of China, very early data was that, uh, you know, this was primarily something that just affected older people. As more and more people have been infected around the world, a clear picture of this virus and what it does is, is emerging. Uh, for example, some of the young people who contracted the virus in China recovered. Now they're being examined a month, two months later, and they're finding that in some of those patients, they have 20 to 30% decreased lung function. They have ev evidence of scarring in the lungs, which is you know a more permanent form of damage, they are listed as recovered. That's true; they, they are recovered, but you know it, it it definitely left its toll on on some of these young people as well. So recovery doesn't mean they didn't get sick, and 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 I think that's a really important point. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Uh, as the coronavirus changes lives around the world, we're going to continue to bring you answers to questions about the pandemic. Tune into the CNN Global Hall Town Hall live in partnership with Facebook hosted by Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper. That's tomorrow, 10 p.m. Eastern. Hand sanitizer now on tap. We're going to visit a distillery that has stopped making spirits instead to make thousands of bottles of sanitizer every week. Stay with us. In lots of places across the country, hand sanitizer is impossible to come by. So in the American spirit, some distilleries are now getting creative using their high-proof alcohol to try to help others combat the coronavirus. CNN's Miguel Marquez shows us how. Eight Oaks Distillers in eastern Pennsylvania, like everywhere, was about to shut down and wait out the pandemic. Right away. Then its owner, Chad Butters, husband to a cancer survivor, saw another need for the main ingredient in hand sanitizer, alcohol. We're very good at making alcohol. That's our business. Uh, and so what we can do is we can take that alcohol and we can uh, add some in inactive ingredients and create the hand sanitizer that people are, are in need of. The local cancer support group needed it. So did hospitals, emergency services, nearby towns and businesses that had to keep working. This is an unprecedented time that we're in. I don't think it's a time for panic or chaos, but it is a time for a sense of urgency and purpose. And I think that's what's happening within the community now. So appalled at reports of hoarding and price gouging, Eight Oaks stopped making vodka, gin, and bourbon and cranked up the sanitizer. What we're doing right now is literally taking what was going to be a bourbon run, and now we are going to make that a very high-proof alcohol instead. We'll add ingredients like glycerin to make it more viscous uh, on your hands and a little bit of peroxide. That's the World Health Organization's kind of recipe. Simple as that. It's very, very simple. The thing is, is just uh, the alcohol is the hard part. We already know how to do that. Just hours after hatching the plan, the first batch, only a few hundred bottles, the requests way more than they can fill. They were in desperate need for even more bottles. This is bottle stock that we have left over. We had a soap and lotion business where we employed adults with disabilities. Lynn Elko shut that business down a few years ago due to personal reasons. She heard about Eight Oaks Distillery and had just what they needed sitting in storage, all for free. What does this say about what we have to do now? It says the last time I checked, we're not in this alone, that we all have to come together to keep moving everything forward, to keep everybody healthy and well. Butters, who retired from the Army in 2015, is now scaling up. The Army Chief Warrant Officer 5 turned entrepreneur expects to churn out 10,000 bottles a week. Not only is he keeping his 25 employees working, but if it turns out right, he'll be hiring. 
I'm sure you didn't think you'd be busier given uh, what's happened. No, but we are 100% committed to, to um, you know, to providing this product out to the people that need it in the community. It's perfect. One business, one community in rural Pennsylvania coming together in a time of need. Scrawled on a whiteboard in their makeshift workspace, their simple mission, get hand sanitizer to those in need. And now, if you thought this story couldn't get any sweeter or nicer, you might ask, how much are they selling it for? They're giving it away. They're asking for donations if people can, but anybody who needs it, they're giving it away for free. Jake? What a great story, and what a fantastic contrast with those nitwits we're seeing at spring break in Florida. Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Coming up next, CNN will talk to one of the nation's governors taking action to combat the spread of coronavirus. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 